Business Diplomacy Today, the podcast about international relations and geopolitics from a business perspective. We help you anticipate the changing political and societal trends that influence your business. Welcome. My name is Matthias Katon. I'm your host. Business Diplomacy Today is sponsored by the Indo-German Center for Business Excellence. The center is a think tank, research center, and network that connects people and organizations interested in business relations between India and Germany. As an academic institution founded in 2021 at Frankfurt School of Finance and Management, it is independent and impartial, but always close to the real world. To find out more about the center, go to indogerman.center, and you can obviously also find the link in the show notes. In today's episode, we will talk about geopolitics and geoeconomics, particularly from the perspective of an investor. And as usual, I have a guest here with me, an expert on the topic. And in this case, it's Joachim Clement. Welcome, Joachim. Thank you, Matthias. And thanks for having me. Joachim is Head of Strategy, Accounting and Sustainability at Liberum which is an investment bank, an independent investment bank headquartered in the UK. Joachim has worked in the investment industry for more than 20 years, mostly on the buy side. And before joining Liberum, Joachim worked as head of equity strategy and head of asset allocation for a major Swiss private bank, as chief investment officer for family offices, and as an institutional investor as well as head of research for a boutique investment firm. So a very long and rounded career in the investment industry. He holds a master's in mathematics from ETH Zurich and a master's in economics from the University of Hagen. He's also a CFA charter holder and he has authored two major publications, as far as I understand, The Seven Mistakes Every Investor Makes which is certainly an interesting topic. And then geoeconomics, the interplay between geopolitics, economics, and investments. And uh, given the topic of this podcast, we will focus more on the latter book rather than the former, although I'm sure that both are quite interesting. Joachim, I'd like to begin with a definition, especially when there is a term that may not be familiar to everyone, or at least not the definition so geoeconomics, what is that really? I know geopolitics, most of the listeners have probably heard that one, but what is geoeconomics? Yes, absolutely. Geopolitics is the term that most people are familiar with. It is about international relations and about the interactions of different political powers in all kinds of global political matters. Now, there is no fixed definition for geoeconomics, but essentially what I mean with geoeconomics is how geopolitics and uh, political actions across the globe between different countries mostly influence economic and financial outcomes. So if we are in a world over the last 30 years, for example, that is increasingly globalizing, where free trade is expanded from before the fall of the of the of communism uh, mostly western europe and developed countries in north america and asia to now including in particular china but also india and other major emerging markets what economic implications do these changes in international relations have 
Yes, and as far as I understand, uh, traditionally, at least in in the uh, scientific world, the world of research, the economists did not take that into account very much. Is that true? That is very true, uh, especially during my career, which in the introduction, you, you, you showed how old I am by just kind of going on again and again about all the jobs that I had in the past. So, But over the last two decades, we've been in a very, very benign environment where we mostly reap the benefits of geopolitical developments. And I've already mentioned globalization and free trade as the key benefits. And as a result, economists and investors in general kind of neglected that topic more and more. And to me, it was always kind of a hobby. I always found that very, very interesting. And in 2019, I started to write that book that, that we're discussing now. And little did we know, and, and unfortunately, in 2022, it became incredibly relevant again on the negative side with the Russian invasion into Ukraine and all its negative economic implications. You talked a lot about, and I found that interesting, you talked about, uh, you know, the increasing globalization and the increasing benefit of free trade. And this is probably true if you look at the past couple of decades. But now, actually, a lot of people say, you know, we're, we're in decline. So the, the whole process is reversing. Globalization is retrenching. Economies are getting closed up again. Is that just a bump in that progress? Or do you think that we're actually at a point where things will go backwards to where we were maybe a couple of decades ago? I don't think that we are going to enter a stage of deglobalization where we go backwards. However, the last three years with the pandemic and now the energy crisis have made it very clear to businesses in Germany as well as everywhere else in Europe that relying on a very simple business model where you have just one or two suppliers for certain critical input factors is probably not such a great idea. Uh, and I think over the next five to 10 years, that will lead to two different developments. On the one hand, as I said, I don't think we're going to see deglobalization, but we will see diversification in global supply chains. So meaning that you don't just buy your ga natural gas from Russia, but from other suppliers as well, uh, that you might not only buy some raw materials of finished uh, semi-finished goods from China or Southeast Asia, but you get factories in place and, and suppliers in place in Southeastern Europe, in Africa, in Latin America, just to diversify your, your risks in that respect. The other part is that we a lot of businesses are already starting to think about reshoring, backshoring, however you want to call it, namely bringing production processes that have been outsourced and offshored to India, China, etc., back home to Germany, France, the UK, you name it. And there, the problem is that you only do that if you have the capital to invest, because it is absolutely clear that la unit labor costs in Germany are much higher than they are in China or in Southeast Asia or in India for that matter. So the only way you can economically do sensible backshoring is by replacing labor with capital, basically automatizing things, using more digitalization, automatization, and, and things like that. And I think that is a second trend that we will fa face in the next five to 10 years to kind of spread the risk of supply chain disruptions better than we used to.
think that on the country level, we've all realized that uh, maybe relying too much on one particular country is not a good idea. We've seen that with, with Russia, in particular with gas, and now the discussion has moved a little bit to China, where you know where there is a much broader and deeper economic integration. The question that I have, or the, the little bit of the doubt, is to what extent does this lesson on the national level also break down to the individual company? Because you're, you're uh, first and foremost, you advise investors, you are an investor. Because my feeling is that a lot of these companies uh, are still continuing uh, on the same path. So there is no diversification away from China. As far as I can see, uh, some companies, BASF, the big chemical company, they recently announced that they would, I think, invest another billion or so in China in the next uh, decade. So is there really that diversification happening uh, on the level of the individual company? And maybe in addition to that, is it only about supply chains because the problem i think that these companies are facing is that they're not only supplying from these countries but they're also selling so for a lot of um, german european uh, western countries china is not just a workshop anymore a place where you manufacture but it's also a place where you sell a lot of your products whether they be cars or chemical products or whatever absolutely and that is why i say we don't get deglobalization in the sense of abandoning China as a, as a supplier or abandoning other countries as suppliers. But when we make incremental investments, and we already see that with some companies, when you think about making incremental investments in, in the sense of building a new factory or expanding the capacity of an existing factory, that on the margin will be done in other countries than where we used to. Uh, it is absolutely clear that BASF and other major companies will continue to invest in China because it is amongst the fastest growing end markets for these companies. So investments there are absolutely necessary. But if you have suppliers or, or factories, say one in Morocco and two in Ukraine, which is the case for a German cable manufacturer for the automotive industry. They had three factories, as I said, two in Ukraine, one in Morocco. The two in Ukraine had to shut down with the war, unfortunately. And so now they have to expand the Moroccan facility. And this is kind of what happens on the margin. And this is also why I think this kind of diversification on a global scale will take a long time before we realize it. Just like globalization is a very slow-moving trend, it will also be a slow-moving trend to, to diversify the, chain, the supply chains. To give you a little bit of a number, the emerging market share of global manufacturing used to be 9% of global manufacturing in the 1990s. 25 years later, in the late 2010s, when I have the last numbers, it was 13%. So it's a four percentage point increase in 25 years, but that has made a big, big difference on all kinds of economic things, not the least inflation. To look at it from a positive perspective, this diversification could also mean that uh, more countries have the chance to to benefit from globalization because you know they are increasingly on the radar screen of companies when it comes to investments. Now, you, you mentioned Morocco as one example. It's probably not the one that most people would mention first. Is it possible to name a few countries that you believe will benefit from this increasing gradual diversification? Yes. Here in Europe, there are, on the one hand, countries like Romania, Bulgaria that are now part of the European Union and that have still very low unit labor costs compared to, say, France or Germany. 
another prime candidate for me is Turkey. Turkey's unit labor costs have actually fallen over the last 20 years, while those of India and China have increased. So the gap, the cost gap, so to say, has shrunk. Now, Turkey has its very own set of problems with inflation running way above 80%, and uh, that creates a lot, a lot of problems. But the benefit for, say, a German company manufacturing or importing from Turkey is that there's also a free trade agreement between Turkey and the EU. So you have much lower hurdles in terms of customs and bureaucracy, et cetera, that benefit Turkey. And with every bit that Turkish economy gets more into trouble, it sounds very cynical, but that means that the Turkish lira is going to devalue more and it makes it even cheaper for German companies to import for an established basis in Turkey. Interesting. You, you mentioned reshoring, onshoring companies bringing production back home. And uh, of course, uh, that may uh, have implications on the cost. So if labor costs are, are different in the countries and the company's home markets than somewhere abroad. But there are other limitations, I uh, guess, right? Natural resources is one. You can't necessarily onshore the, pro <laughs> the procurement of natural resources because they just don't exist anywhere. I mean, rare earths are often cited in this respect. Uh, they, they come predominantly from China, I believe. Now, the, the Swedes have recently announced that they apparently found a lot of rare earths somewhere in the north of their country. But that is generally not so easy to onshore or reshore the procurement of natural resources. And likewise, I think um, those industries that require a significant amount of, of knowledge or uh, technological savvy. And I think about uh, semiconductors, for example, a lot of which uh, are produced in, in Taiwan, which I guess uh, also poses a, a geopolitical or geoeconomic risk, of course, uh, if there is an interruption due to some kind of a violent conflict between mainland China and Taiwan. So what do you do with these uh, industries? How do you, ha from the investor perspective, how do you handle these risks? Yeah, this is indeed one of the major headaches that we have as investors for the coming years is what happens if China and Taiwan get into a heated conflict. Whether that is with the use of military force or not doesn't really matter. But if we go down the route of Western economic sanctions against China, we are really, really approaching a very difficult situation globally. You already mentioned rare earth minerals and rare earth metals, where China controls 90% of the production of, of uh, rare earths globally. It's not just that. When you look at certain pharmaceuticals, those that are not patented, uh, generics production is predominantly done in India. But if you look at where the active pharmaceutical ingredients come from, well, paracetamol, 80% of the active pharmaceutical ingredients are produced in China. For most uh, standard antibiotics, from penicillin to streptomycin, etc., uh, 100% of the active ingredients come from China. And then we can go down the list. Uh, solar cells, 80% of the world's production in China, 70% of battery production in China, etc., etc., etc. So China has a very very strong hold on some really key bottlenecks in global advanced technological products. And the only way you can deal with that is by looking at European or American companies that have access to the last bits that aren't controlled by China. To give you an idea, BASF, for example, has access to silicon production in eastern in the eastern US. Similarly, Wacker Chemie that has quartzite production facilities in the eastern US, which is used uh, 
for silicon manufacturing. Similarly, when it comes to rare earths, there are rare earth mines that are currently being developed in Angola for the metals to be shipped to the UK and then they're refined with a company called Pensana. So there are these kind of small, smaller parts of the global supply chain that are still controlled by European and American com companies. And that is basically your reserve. And that is as an investor, how you would hedge against that risk. But do you have the impression that um, the CEOs or you know the board members of major international corporations are thinking like that today? That they're looking at their supply chains and trying to hedge uh, those risks, uh, or is it more like, well, let's go where we always went, or where the, you know we expect the most economic benefit and, and hope for for the better? When it comes at least to German car manufacturers like BMW and Volkswagen, they definitely think about this already. So Volkswagen and BMW both have been uh, signing contracts with producers and refiners of rare earth metals in order to become independent or less dependent on Chinese supplies. A lot of that is still in development, so we're not there yet. But in, in five years, three to five years, we should be there yet and they should have an alternative supply. So that is also fostered by EU initiatives like the Strategic Metal Supply Initiative that provides a list of some 30 plus metals and minerals that the EU considers strategically important for its industry and for its, its technologies. And the rare earth metals are one of them, but there are other uh, high-tech metals that, that are considered there as well. And businesses across Europe are looking for alternative ways to source them to be less dependent on China and other almost monopolistic suppliers. We now talked a lot about natural resources as, as one component of geoeconomic risks. What are other things that investors and companies should look out for? This again comes with the question of how does geopolitics influence economics or economic variables. And uh, we've seen last year with the Russian invasion of Ukraine how an energy shock leads to a cost of living inflation crisis across Europe within a very short time. And in general, a lot of these risks translate into the economy through two different pathways. The one is potential inflation because it becomes more expensive to source some goods or services that you need to run the economy or to run your business. And you try as a business to kind of pass on those higher input costs to your end customers. The other one is that the central bank or the government might be forced to intervene either through hiking interest rates or lowering interest rates in order to stimulate an economy that is under pressure from geopolitical events. Uh, and that means that interest rates change and that can have all kinds of positive and negative consequences. Falling interest rates is great if you want to uh, take out a loan as a business and want to invest. But the problem is interest rates are falling in these cases because demand is faltering. So does it really make sense for you to, to invest in a new machine or factory or whatever it is if your potential customer demand is, is not as high in the next three to five years than you expected it to be? 
But that is, I mean, that is something that I think affects you as a business, whether or not you have any exposure to geoeconomic risks, right? Because, you know, even if you're a mom and pop shop here somewhere down the road, you have no international business, you have no supply chains that reach very far, you're still affected by inflation. So that's yes. probably something that you really can't prepare for, at least not when we look at the geoeconomical sphere, right? You just take it when it comes or... That is that is true. I mean, preparing against geopolitical risks is a very, very dangerous game. If you have international relations through your customers or your suppliers, suppliers or both, the best you can do is what basically the investment world calls diversification. You know, do not have too much concentration risks in a single supplier, but simultaneously do not have too much concentration risk in a, in a single or a small number of customers. If you have just one customer and that customer puts pressure on you, there is very little you can do to avoid that pressure. But other than that diversification, all kinds of measures have been proposed for businesses to hedge against geopolitical risks. And the problem with that in general is that these geopolitical events are very, very rare. They are very common in some areas. So if you are doing business in Eastern Africa and you're dealing with people in Somalia, Tanzania, Kenya, etc., well, then you're used to having to deal with security issues and, and things like that. But for most companies in Europe that have customers across Europe and relatively stable economies, geopolitical events of significance are incredibly rare, which is also why we forgot so much about it for 20 years in the economics and investment sphere, uh, because nothing happened for 20 years. And this is where, I mean, I'm not a communist, but I, I like to quote Lenin in that case, uh, because he once said that there are years when nothing happens, and then there's weeks when years happen. And we, we seem to be in one of those phases where in weeks, years happen. Yeah, well, that is true. And for a long time, uh, we or many at least thought that history had ended, uh, which uh, was an interesting thought, but probably was a, a bit uh, premature. So you are not a huge fan in general of forecasting or trying to anticipate some of these events? Yeah, our, or my, I consider my job not to forecast the future, but to prepare myself for it. And those are two very different things. And, and the world is obsessed with forecasts. I'm sorry, I can't oblige. <laughs> Good. No, we, we like deviant thoughts and people who put uh, different perspectives to things. I mean, the, the funny thing is, though, if I may, may interject, in the book on geoeconomics, I actually, no, it's not in the other book, I close with my 10 rules of forecasting. Uh, and these are 10 rules that I've developed over my career of kind of how to forecast if you must. And there are two rules that I consider particularly useful when it comes to geopolitics. And, and the first rule is political leaders' first goal is to stay in power. A second rule is they want to become rich and make sure that they can enjoy the fruits of their actions. Let's put it this way. With these two rules in mind, a lot of geopolitical actions make a lot of sense. And this is kind of the only kind of rules that I try to follow when it comes to forecasting geopolitical events. Just a thought that occurred to me, isn't that, this doesn't seem to be so much difference between heads of state then or heads of government and CEOs, right? Uh, no, <laughs> it's the same thing. It's just a different business. <laughs> 
<laughs> so you say, yeah, forecasting is essentially difficult. You know, I don't know who said it, but you know, there is this saying that you know predictions about are are, are very difficult, especially when they're about the future or something like that. Um, but you like to be prepared, and and one thing that um, maybe fits into that quite nicely is that. There are some techniques, such as scenario planning, for example, that are inherently more about preparation than about forecasting. And I found it interesting. I'm curious to hear what you think about that. That that was a technique that was originally developed by by Shell uh, in the 1970s. And obviously, the oil companies they had to deal with geopolitical risk all the time because, for one reason or another, a lot of energy resources uh, tend to be in rather difficult places of the world. So they always had to face these uh, questions, I guess. And they also found out in the 70s, decades ago, that their forecasts about you know oil prices and all that kind of stuff, they were always invariably wrong. So they, they changed their approach. Is that something that you are more a fan of than... Oh, yeah. Uh, this, is something, this is something I do all the time also in my job. I told you that I don't like to forecast, but part of my job as, a, as head of strategy requires me to forecast at least stock markets and interest rates. And I try to wiggle myself out of that corner by presenting always at least three scenarios. So I can never say I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> nevertheless, it doesn't surprise me that Shell developed this in the 1970s, because the 1970s was an, uh, a decade of intense geopolitical tensions. Think of the OPEC oil crises. Uh, think of terrorism that was rampant during the days. Think of all the liberation movements in former colonies and, and instability in Latin America that where democratically elected governments were replaced by military dictatorships, etc. Another thing that we can learn from the 1970s, and I don't know who came up with that, but if you study what businesses did during the 1970s when inflation was high and uncertainty was high, was to increase vertical integration. Because it allows you to take out the profit margin of your suppliers and uh, some of your customers. So that is why the 1970s was the, the big growth era of the conglomerates vertically integrated conglomerates. And this is also maybe why companies like Shell or BP are still relatively highly vertically integrated. They are not just pumping oil and then selling it on to something, but they have refineries and up to, to petrol stations. So it makes a lot of sense if you have that highly uncertain environment uh, to increase your, your reach across the entire supply chain. So we might see a resurgence of those conglomerates in the time to come. That's for me. It seems to be a little bit like fashion, right? So these uh, it's a pendulum that swings into the one into one direction, and then eventually it it'll come back in the other direction. Probably also because uh, management consultants uh, they need to sell their their advice uh, to to companies, I guess. You have a, a quote in, in your book uh, at the beginning. You quote a, a sociologist, William Bruce Cameron, and I like that quote a lot. Uh, and it says, not everything that can be counted counts, and not everything that counts can be counted. And I think that also plays quite nicely into what we've been discussing about forecasting. Is and A lot of forecasting tends to be inherently quantitative, right? So you try to crunch some numbers uh, with you know, increasingly sophisticated models, But, you know, as uh, the old adage goes, it's garbage in, garbage out. So, you know, if, if whatever you feed into your, 
your model is not accurate or is not a good predictor, then of course the results cannot be any better. Now, we have seen tremendous advances in technology when it comes to assessing uncountable information uh, through AI, for example. Everybody is talking about chat GPT nowadays, you know, what, what it can do and all these other things. But they, in essence, what they allow us is to automatize the analysis of contextual data to an extent that was not possible until very, very recently. Will that change what you say about uh, prediction, about forecasting, about our capacity to analyze? No, and I'm quite adamant about that. It will change the way we make predictions, the way we think about investing money, whether we are a business or whether we are investors in financial markets, because the power of artificial intelligence systems and big data systems is enormous, but it is step forward in quantity, not in quality. To give you a couple of, of examples what I mean with that, go to ChatGPT and ask it, what gender will the first female president of the United States be? Perfectly sensible question. It is unable to answer that question. Why? Because ChatGPT is based on all the texts available on the internet, basically, and it tries to make inferences with, with certain probability, this is the correct answer, okay? And it will get better at that over time. And, and maybe this question that I just phrased will be able to solve in the next release in, in summer of this year. But it shows you that it can only rely on what is known, what has been written about beforehand and what has been analyzed beforehand. Now, one and a half weeks ago, we came across another one of those situations, which is, I dare to say, is not really geopolitical because it affects only one country, but the influence, the, the impact of that uh, event could affect the entire world. Uh, on the 19th of January, the United States Treasury hit its debt ceiling once again. And We do this every couple of years. There's a debt ceiling limit, and then the, the government hits the debt ceiling, and then there's a political debate, and eventually it gets resolved in the last minute and then lifted so that the U.S. government does not end up in default, which is great. And this is what I expect to happen over the next three to six months. Uh, we, we're going to go through this nice little song and dance, and then we're going to be all happy, and it's all going to be fine. But what happens if we don't get a resolution, if the U.S. really has to default? Nobody has a clue what's going to happen then. It is impossible to simulate that, to forecast that, or to count that. It is something that counts, but an event that cannot be counted because we have absolutely no comparison anywhere in history or in our models. Everything breaks down and we'll just have to do it on the fly. And, and that is an event where I would say, no matter how good your AI is, it will not be able to solve that question. Which then again, no one is, is able, right? Uh, not even humans who are still smarter than, than AI. I, I find that, that interesting is that we always uh, prepare for the last crisis, never for the next one. So at the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of people criticized governments for not having enough stockpiles of masks and gloves and all that kind of stuff. 
Which again, you know, if we had stocked uh, those things for decades without using them, uh, there would have been an outcry uh, about the millions of dollars or pounds spent on these uh, things. And uh, now everybody is prepared for a pandemic and the next crisis will probably not be a pandemic, it will be something else. Now, we've talked a lot about things that seemingly sound negative, crises, wars, conflicts, defaults, and all that kind of stuff. So to maybe, you know, move into a bit more uplifting dimension, geoeconomics can't just possibly be about things to avoid. It can also mean opportunities, right? So from the business perspective, what kind of opportunities are there and how, you know, as a business leader, can you maybe pursue them? And you, you pointed out that all the risks stem, stem from one area, namely conflict between countries or regions. Well, if you turn that around, cooperation is where the opportunities come into play. And that means, we've already mentioned globalization, but in any, any form of free trade is a real benefit for businesses. It reduces bureaucracy. It reduces costs. It opens up access to new markets. I sit here in London and we in the UK have six years ago managed to shoot ourselves in the foot by leaving the EU, which the price we're paying now and businesses here in the UK are paying now is that they have much higher costs if they want to export to France, Spain, etc. And, and sometimes it becomes so prohibitive if the market is small for them that they will just not do business there anymore. Meanwhile, in East Asia, you have the development of the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, RCEP, where you have a network of bilateral trade agreements and agreements to harmonize trade between countries, starting from China to Japan to Australia and most of Southeast Asia, that will simplify access for businesses to these markets, that will reduce costs and time to market for businesses participating in this RCEP. Uh, and that is, in fact, likely to become eventually the world's biggest trade union once it is, it's finished. At the moment, it is a series of bilateral treaties, but I think that the intent clearly is to turn this into like an EU on steroids, so to say. That would be certainly good. I think both you and I agree on uh, the fact that free trade is beneficial for, for all parties involved. However, not everybody shares that. And sometimes one has the impression that politically, at least, uh, free trade is on the defensive uh, right now, also in countries such as the, the US. But maybe that also changes. There are also some encouraging signals. Of course, I work a lot uh, with and on India, and there are some discussions whether the EU might take up uh, free trade negotiations with India again. And so there is, I think it's a bit of a mixed bag of signals, uh, pro and, and con there. Joachim, we have uh, two fixed categories in our, in our podcast uh, to which I would like to get now. A bold prediction, the world in 10 years. As difficult as that may be, and I know you don't like forecasts, so you're also allowed to give us uh, maybe two, maybe even three uh, quick scenarios, if you wish. But we would like to pick your brain on uh, how the future looks like. Okay, let me give you three scenarios then. My base case scenario, uh, which you might call my forecast, is that in 2030, let me put it 2030, not 10 years, but we don't quibble about three years back or forth, is that China will have incorporated Taiwan into its country, but nobody cares. The world will be fine after some uh, difficult periods in between. 
because the West took the next couple of five years or so to prepare and to be able to let China, so to say, have access to Taiwan without cutting it off from the supply of semiconductors and other things. Base case scenario. Pessimistic scenario, we will enter in uh, all-out armed conflict with China that will lead to a breakdown of the globalization where every country will have to orient itself again, like in the Cold War times, between kind of uh, a preference for China as one block and a preference for the United States and Western Europe as another block, which leads us down the path towards a more fragmented world with clearly distinct pathways for technological innovation. Think about 5G and 6G telecommunication, for example, where China and the West might have very different standards for telecommunication. And as a result, businesses can only deliver into one or two of the one of those systems. That's the bear case. And the optimistic case is China will turn itself into a Western-style democracy. We're all happy and everything turns out to be fantastic. And we literally get an extension of the last 10 to 20 years. Wow, three very different uh, scenarios. Do you dare to put a probability to each of them? Or do no. you think they're... No. <laughs> no. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> we won't hold... There's, like, only, I, there's only so far I go with my okay. forecast. <laughs> I, I'm not sure if this podcast will still arrive, exist in a 10 years, but we have no plan so far to hold our guests accountable. But, you know, who knows? Maybe we'll invite you back and we'll play the audio back, uh, back to well, you the problem, in 10 years. The problem time. is the internet never forgets, as I always tell people true. who made forecasts 10 years ago and I dig them up. <laughs> that is, is true. No, we, we know how... How, how difficult it is and obviously in, in the good sense of the use of scenario development or scenario planning is uh, hope for the best but prepare for the worst so I think that's um, the, the advice usually you know given to organizations is that you know you should strive to uh, at least survive in each of the three scenarios in one way or another and that's how far you, you can take it but obviously I think there is um, I think in terms of desirability uh, globally there is a clear hierarchy of, uh, of of those scenarios in terms of what we wish will will happen so let's hope that i think the third one that you outlined uh, at least that would clearly be my my preferred scenario executive briefing what you should read now there we ask our guests to give some recommendations on what people should read uh, next if they want to know more about the topic of the the episode in this case geoeconomics and obviously i will start with one recommendation is that is quite clearly your book about it uh, we will put the link to it in the show notes i think it's very well written it's from a scholarly perspective but clearly written from a practical angle so a very good read and i would certainly recommend every listener who is interested in the topics that we've discussed here to have a look at that publication but maybe you could add one or two more pieces to that yeah, mix. You, you, forgot, you forgot to mention that uh, the book is available for free online. So it is not shameless marketing uh, that I produce here. I'm a banker who doesn't care about money. That's why. And if you don't have the time, because I know the executives that I talk to, uh, like reading a whole book is something that happens once or twice a year. Go to my blog. I have got a free blog as well, where I publish a short post Monday to Friday, five times a week. And on January the 4th, I wrote a nice post called Seven Decision Errors in Business. And it is 
kind of a nice ex a list of examples of typical decision errors executives make together with a short recommendation of where you can read up more about that and how to kind of help prevent some of these mistakes. Excellent. We'll make sure to put the link to your blog in the show notes as well so that people can simply click on it. Joachim, we've come to the end of uh, this episode. This was a great conversation, very insightful. Thank you very much for being a guest today. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. This was another episode of the Business Diplomacy Today podcast. This podcast is presented by the Indo-German Center for Business Excellence. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe to it on your favorite podcasting platform. And of course, we would also be delighted if you would leave a review or a rating there. You can also go to our website at businessdiplomacy.today to check out the show notes of this episode. That's it for today. Thanks for listening.